I'm Erin Worsham, Executive Director of the Center for the Advancement of Social Entrepreneurship at Duke University. And this is Case in Point, a podcast where we explore how social ventures can leap the chasm from idea to impact at scale. Those of you listening to Case in Point may have heard of a popular management book called The Lean Startup by Eric Ries. The Lean Startup captures how innovation happens in Silicon Valley. It's all about building the cheapest and fastest prototypes in order to learn what customers want, measure what works, and iterate. And that's where today's guest, Ann Mei Chang, comes in. Ann Mei has a fascinating career that spans small tech startups, big corporate behemoths like Google, international nonprofits, and most recently the U.S. government, including a stint as the chief innovation officer at the U.S. Agency for International Development. With her career coming from Silicon Valley and then moving into the social sector, she started to think about how methodologies and books like The Lean Startup that are based in that Silicon Valley culture could be extrapolated and adapted to work in the social sector. What if it translates and what are the things that don't work for social impact organizations? So Anne May wrote a book called Lean Impact, How to Innovate for Radically Greater Social Good, which builds on the ideas of Lean Startup and applies them to mission-driven organizations. So in today's episode of Case in Point, I had the chance to talk with Anne May about her own career path and also the tactics and advice from her book that can help social impact organizations innovate to achieve greater good. Anne May, welcome to the Case in Point podcast. We are so excited to have you here with us today. Uh, you're here to talk about the launch of your new book, Lean Impact, and uh, I'm just thrilled to have the opportunity to get to dive in a little bit deeper with you uh, in the hopes of learning a little bit more about your background and interest and then getting some of those tips and takeaways from, from your book as well. Well, thank you so much for having me. It's wonderful to be back here in North Carolina. It's such a beautiful time of year. Thank you, yes. I would love to start with with talking a little bit about your background. Before we dig into the book, I always want to get to know the the speaker a little bit more. And I am I am sort of fascinated by your background. So I, we have Stanford in common. So you studied as an engineer at, at Stanford and then spent the first half of your career over 20 years in Silicon Valley in the technology space. So I know you were with, with Google and Apple and, and startups along the way. So a very, in some sense, very traditional engineering technology career out in Silicon Valley. But then the part I find fascinating is you decide to completely pivot halfway through your career and then switch over to impact. Working with Mercy Corps, who's a, a great international NGO that, that we partner with here at Case. Um, and then most recently at, at USAID as the Chief Innovation Officer, where we also had the chance to work together uh, with, with you and your team there. So it's just a fascinating story. Uh, and so I would love to start there. Tell us a little bit more about that career path and what made you decide to make that switch and pivot halfway through. Um, yeah, it, it, it's been a fun journey, I have to say. The first half of my career was very traditional. It, it, uh, I studied computer science at Stanford, and, and in fact, the, the year I studied computer science at Stanford was the first year there was a computer science undergrad. Mm. Um, and, and so now I think it's the biggest major in the university. So I got to wild, ride this wild ride of watching the dot-com boom and bust and everything. Mm -hmm. um, and it was a lot of fun, a lot of challenge. but. 
I knew all along that I wanted to do something more meaningful. And it was actually quite early on that I made a decision to spend the first half of my career in tech and the second half of my career doing something oh, so for this good. was very strategic it, along the way. It wasn't a decision halfway through that you were no, frustrated it, it, with technology. No, it wasn't like just like one day I decided to do this. It was literally in my early to mid-20s. Um, I was in, in the tech world, and a, a woman that I knew not well um, at Apple, who was an executive there, um, named Elizabeth Birch, she one day announced that she was going to leave her job at Apple, and she was going to go to D.C. and run a nonprofit called the Human Rights Campaign. And, you know, it just sort of shocked me. I was like, wow, like, that's a really interesting idea. And I decided right then and there I was going to do the same thing, not necessarily go work at HRC or whatever, but but that I wanted to, like, get to a point in my career, um, you know, kind of in mid-career, make a shift because I wanted to do something that just, you know, as much as I found tech exciting and challenging, I wanted to do something that felt more meaningful, that would get me excited to get up every day and feel like I was making a difference. And and so about seven years ago, I sort of hit the age where I felt like, okay, if I'm going to do this, it's time to do it. And, uh, you know, made that leap. And I ended up starting out by taking a leave of absence from Google and uh, joining the State Department through a fellowship program. And, and I thought of my time at State as sort of my um, custom masters in public policy mm. because I knew there was a lot I had to learn. It's a very different world. I decided, you know, um, when I made the switch to focus on global poverty because as I kind of surveyed the landscape, I recognized that global poverty was at the root of so many of the things I cared about. And so it seemed like a good place to focus, but I knew very little. And so, uh, you know, my time at State allowed me to just get exposure to so many of the different players that, and around the world doing such interesting stuff and start to learn about this new world. Mm-hmm. That's fantastic. Uh, and, it, and it's so reminiscent of a lot of the alumni that we work with or, or the different stakeholders in our audience at Case that often will have more quote-unquote traditional career paths, but always know at their heart that they have a passion and, and that there's, uh, they're seeking fulfillment in terms of contributing in a bigger way to, to social problems. Um, we started to talk a little bit about your, your book, so I, I want to dive in there. It's an exceptional book, Lean Impact. I, I was just sharing with you earlier that I had the chance to really dig into it this weekend, and, and I'm loving all of it. So thrilled that our audience will get to hear straight from you about some of the lessons and, and tips and stories from, from the book. Um, I would like to start with the, the basics, though. Tell us a little bit more about what inspired you to write Lean Impact. Yeah, so... In, in my journey, kind of coming from the tech world into the global development sphere, I knew I had a lot to learn. And so I spent, you know, the first few years really just, you know, getting out to the field, talking to people, learning what was being done, what what, what were people doing, what was working, what was not working. And one of the things, the, the, the things that I noticed was one that incredible people, like people are so dedicated, are so passionate, are so um, committed and, but yet I also noticed that despite all of that, we just didn't seem to be moving the needle enough. Like mm-hmm. if you step back and look at the challenges that we face in society and challenges we face the, in global development. The magnitude development. of those problems. Yeah, right? like if you look on the macro sense, like it doesn't feel like we're moving the needle enough. And I, I was accustomed sort of coming from Silicon Valley of this hubris of, you know, we can solve anything, we can transform things. And and billions of people is easy to get to, that exactly. sort of idea, right? Yeah. And in the global development sphere, like despite all the dedication, it's like I didn't feel like we were moving things. Mm-hmm. I also noticed that the pace of change around the world is just continuing to accelerate. And you live that in Silicon Valley. Things are, you know, what's cutting edge today is 
you know, obsolete next year. Mm. And so there's this pace of change that's expected and progress that's expected. And I didn't see that happening in the space either. A lot of the, you know, organizations are still doing the same things now that they were doing five or 10 years ago. Mm -hmm. And so I really became passionate about this idea of melding this dedication and passion and good intentions with a set of tools that would help us keep up and, and get ahead of the the changes in the world and the progress in technology and and the needs that are that exist, um, and and I think that's really where the book came from is really lo learning from the best practices of innovation as they've been sort of refined through Silicon Valley and that sort of crucible of innovation, <laughs> and bringing them to the world's greatest problems. and And the reality is it's much harder, mm -hmm. right? And so it's not that I think anybody would say, hey, we don't want to do this. I think everyone would say, yes, this all makes sense. None of it is rocket science. It's all very common sense, um, common sense approaches, but it's harder. Um, and I think th what the book tries to do is really look at the the barriers to applying the you know best practice of innovation, and how do we work within the systems that we have and change the systems we have to enable innovation to happen. Mm -hmm. In the book, I think I know sort of the core principles. Some of the core principles are around thinking big but then starting small. Mm -hmm. So tell us a little bit more about that dynamic and, and how you approach that in your advice for social impact organizations. Sure, so one of the things that I was surprised by coming into the social sector is the Silicon Valley world, We everyone thinks big. Every, social, every entrepreneur has their hockey stick graph of how they're mm. gonna reach a billion right. people and make billions of dollars. Whether it's realistic or not, exactly. yes, you have to have the hockey stick graph. But, but it sort of like comes with the territory. I got to the social sector and what I found is that people tend to think within constraints. Like we think about, you know, especially nonprofits, think about, okay, we have this many dollars or we have this many people, or here's the size and scope of a grant. It's a three-year grant with this much money. What can we do with those resources? What's the most good we can do with the things in this box? Mm -hmm. um, and usually by executing even you know optimally on doing whatever you can with things in the box, you solve like 0.001% of the problem. Mm -hmm. um, it's just not sufficient. And so I think one of the reasons that we're not keeping up with the needs is that we're not planning for the needs. Um, and that I, I really wanna see us make a mindset shift, whereas rather than planning for based on constraints, we plan based on needs. Like what is the need in the world? What would it look like to move the needle and have that to shoot at? And that's the thinking big part. It's mm -hmm. like, what is your audacious goal that would really make a difference in the world so that it changes for the better um, and not just put, putting Band-Aids on things? And so let me ask a, a follow-up question on that. I, I love the concept of thinking big. I think we absolutely need to do that more in the social sector. And so many examples of these organizations that we celebrate that are doing incredible work, but is a percentage of the actual need and magnitude of that problem. So I completely celebrate the idea of, of thinking big. I also want to dig into a little bit, though, and say, how, how do we make sure that as organizations are thinking big and setting those those audacious goals, that they're doing it in a realistic and, and effective way. So you had a quote in the book that I loved. You said, I've come to believe that unclear and conservative goals are one of the root causes of inertia in the social sector. So give our audience some, some tips or tactics about how to effectively set audacious goals. Uh -huh. Well, I think that one, the goal, the goal should be relative to the need in the world, right? So again, looking at you know how many people, how many animals, you know mm -hmm. how, what what geography needs a particular 
you know, has a particular problem that needs solving, um, and and to be precise about it, you know, to actually have it be measurable. You know, if I look at nonprofit websites, they often say we're going to end poverty or we're going to mm -hmm. improve the lives of women and girls, and it's just not measurable. You don't know if you're making progress, right? right? So you need something that is measurable and that you can't achieve with business as usual. If you can achieve it with business as usual and you have a solution that's good enough, you don't need to innovate, you just need to execute. Mm -hmm. And we should do that for the places where that's true, but I think that's the rarity that, that that is the case. For most of the problems that we're trying to tackle, we don't have solutions that are sufficient. So we need to know where we're trying to get to. We need to be able to measure our progress relative to that. And then we need to, you know, to the second principle, start small and mm -hmm. start trying things, running experiments, and measuring our progress to see, is this good enough? You know, if there's a billion people that need something, what a degree of effectiveness? How many people does it need to work for? How much does it need to cost per person? Like, how do we optimize for the characteristics of a solution that will allow us to be able to scale, allow us to be able to um, to actually affect the change we're seeking. Mm -hmm. Okay, so this combination of being audacious and, and big thinking on, on those audacious goals, but also grounding it in reality of how do we make sure that as we're measuring towards that audacious goal, that, that it is something that is easily measured that will show us that we're making progress towards towards the, the big vision. Yeah, and I would maybe just quibble a little bit with it easily. So this is mm -hmm. one of the other challenges of innovating for social good. If what you're trying to do is you're in Silicon Valley, you're trying to create an e-commerce website and you just want more people to click on the buy button, that's like really easy to measure, mm -hmm. right? You can yep. like run a little A-B test and you know, tomorrow you'll find, you know, next hour you'll find the results. Um, for the for a lot of the types of social good that we're trying to measure, it can take a long time mm, and it can be hard to measure. And I think that ends up being an excuse for us to not measure mm. and not have data and just sort of fly blindly. Um, and I think we need to stop making that excuse. I think we need to invest in the tools to um, and the data to really measure to the extent that we're able to and find proxies where we can't measure things directly. Um, and we also need to look at early indicators because some of the kinds of things we want to measure can take a long time. You know, educational attainment can take years to mm -hmm. see if it happened. Yeah, ending the cycle of poverty can take, you know, generation to see if it happened. But you know, we all have theories of change that we develop. I mean, I think this is very familiar for p folks who work in this sector. We map out exactly, you know, how our intervention is eventually going to lead to the world changing in excruciating detail to sell ourselves to funders, but then we usually just put it on the bookshelf. And, and what I'm saying is like, take that off the bookshelf, look at those early precursors, those early linkages that will eventually, you believe, lead to the, the change you hope, and let's start testing them. You know, if you think you're going to train some people and then they're going to change this behavior, let's test to see, you know, what percentage of them change that behavior. And then let's optimize the training so that we increase the percentage. So if you go from 60% to 80% in that first link, you're far more likely to have something more profound happen down the road. Talk to us a little bit more about as as you advise organizations about testing along the way. This this idea of starting small and continuing to test and innovate along the way. I know you talk about some main social uh, innovation pillars for what should be be tested. Tell us a little bit more about the the advice you give on that front. What should people be looking at and how should they be testing along those lines? Yeah, so I, I think there are three core pillars to a su successful social innovation. And the problem is that many of the kind of design techniques or organizations focus on one or two of these, but not all three. Mm -hmm. And then we end up falling down on the other ones. And the three are value, impact, and growth. So value is, do you have something that people want? And not only just want like 
it's nice to have, but like really will demand and come back for and tell their friends about? Is it something that really addresses a deeply felt need? Because if people don't want something, it, you know, the rest is going to be an uphill battle. Mm -hmm. um, and so we need to really address that. And so there we're talking the about your, your end user, your, your beneficiary that's going to take the product or the service and implement it. Not only your beneficiary, but all your core stakeholders, mm -hmm. right? Like whether it's your partners, whether it's the government. If, if you have a bunch of passive resistance along the way where people just don't care or it's actually we're working at cross purposes, everything else is going to be harder. Mm -hmm. So really making sure that the people that matter, whether it's your beneficiaries or your partners um, or other players in, in this ecosystem, understanding all their their motivations and making it really work for them so they're working for you mm -hmm. is really essential, I think. And then as we have something that people really want, we also need to make sure it works. It's not enough that people want something. It's got to actually deliver the social impact we want. And not only, again, does it need to deliver the impact, we should be maximizing that impact. We should be tweaking you know, whatever intervention we're looking at so that it delivers as much impact as possible. And then I would say once you have something people want, you know it works, we need to also think about growth. Is there an engine that can accelerate growth over time? I think we often in the social good space think about growth from a very linear standpoint. Mm -hmm. You know, we get, you know, scale is we, we, we won a big grant, so we got a lot of dollars, so we reached a lot of people. And that's not growth to me. That's like just brute, for, brute force scale. Mm -hmm. what, what scale really is, I, uh, Kevin Starr, I love his definition of scale, which is that it's exponential growth. Mm -hmm. like, Scale is when you have an engine that will accelerate over time, because linear growth will never get you very far. You'll just never raise enough money to get there. But exponential growth needs to have some sort of driver that is kind of self-perpetuating in a way that will allow you to then get to somewhere approximating the scope of the need. And that and that, that growth engine can be come from a number of different dimensions. It can be from some sort of variation of a market-driven business model. It can be some sort of variation of government adoption or policy change, or it can be some sort of like replication model or some combination thereof. But it's got to be something that will have, have a life of its own at some point. Mm -hmm, absolutely. And that was something that really resonated with me about your book is that talking about growth or scale and, you know, really a distinction from the more kind of commercial applications of testing and iterating in the social sector. It doesn't have to be just that linear or even exponential growth, but can be through replication, through partnerships, et cetera. So the complexity of the paths to scale. With the idea of, of scaling and growth in the social sector really resonating with the work that we do at Case and, and with so many of the stakeholders that we work with, I would love for you to dig into a little bit more there. Give us a, an example, something you love from the book about a, a venture that's really scaling in an effective way. Yeah, um, and scale looks very different um, when it comes to social good than it does in the private sector. It, it often doesn't mean scaling an organization like it does. Uh, and so w one example from the book is an organization called Vision Spring. That's a social enterprise that had decided to focus on a 700-year-old invention that has been proven to improve productivity and learning potential, and that's eyeglasses. And, you know, I, I love this because it's like, it's not like they have some flashy new idea. This has been around forever, right, for centuries. But their estimates are that two and a half billion people who could benefit from glasses still don't have them. Mm. So it's a real social gap. 
and so they started out like any nonprofit would, where they picked two geographies, El Salvador and India. They decided to start piloting, and they recruited people they called vision entrepreneurs to go out to remote rural areas and provide eyeglasses. And you know, they came back with great stories that you know, people who thought they couldn't see anymore could see again. People who couldn't work anymore could work again. You know, Students kids could, could see learn. in the classroom. Yeah. Absolutely, mm -hmm. and it's amazing, right? And and most nonprofits would be very satisfied with that. It's like, look, we're making a difference. And but they weren't satisfied. They they realized that they were losing money for every person they reached and they would never get very far. Mm -hmm. And so they pivoted. Their first pivot was that they decided to set up vision centers in more urban areas and use the profits from serving more affluent customers to cross-subsidize outreach to more rural areas. And this allowed them to become financially sustainable. And and you know, that is like a huge win for most nonprofits, like we're financially sustainable and we're making a difference. Isn't that great? But for them, they still weren't satisfied because they realized that it would take them decades to scale their organizational structure to reach like all the two and a half billion people they thought could benefit. Um, so they pivoted again. They decided to work through partnerships. They set up a partnership with an organization called BRAC in Bangladesh and leveraged their existing community health worker network to distribute eyeglasses. And it was a benefit to BRAC because they're providing better uh, health care to, to their patients. And Vision Spring was able to, through this partnership, now distribute over a million pairs of glasses. And, and through other partnerships in addition, got their over four and a half million pairs of glasses now. And now most nonprofits would be thrilled. Like we've got to four and a half million people. It's making a big difference. People are happy. But they still weren't satisfied because four and a half billion, million is still a tiny fraction of two and a half billion. Mm -hmm. um, and so their most recent pivot is that they, dis they recognized that the challenges were more systemic, that markets were not functioning well, that, that the uh, eyeglass manufacturers are not investing in R&D to make lower cost enough eyeglasses and um, investing in distribution to far farther and poorer areas, and that governments were failing their citizens, that they weren't providing this basic type of health care. Um, and so they created something called the iLiance, a public-private partnership that is focused on collective action by bringing together eyeglass manufacturers and local governments and, and nonprofits to look at how to address some of these issues. And so one of their early wins was that they signed an MOU with the government of Liberia to integrate vision care into their healthcare system and to their public school system. Um, and so you can imagine that, you know, as they go forward with, you know, now driving change on the systemic level, that they will at some point be able to start making a dent in that that bigger problem. But, but that journey looks very different than it would for a private sector company mm -hmm. trying to make it big, right? It's not necessarily value accrued directly to VisionSpring, but through partners, through alliances, through policy change, and so forth. But through all that, they kept their eye on the prize, which is that two and a half billion people that they wanted to serve. I love the Vision Spring story. We actually, at, at Case, gave Vision Spring an award a few years back oh, for, great. for the work that they were doing, which was probably you know model 2.0 of, of that story you just told. And so it has been really exciting to watch them continue to pivot and, and iterate and be able to uh, study that that story as as they've gone. Really uh, amazing example of, like you said, keeping the eye on the prize and changing the, the path to get there as, as they went. Uh, you know, I'm curious with that example, though, a lot of your book really focuses on the ideas we've talked about of iterating and testing and, and doing these sort of small pilots and tests and experiments along the way. Um, how does that 
translate to an organization like a Vision Spring that is scaling. Mm -hmm. I imagine that you are continuing to do that iteration and piloting and testing all along the way. It's not that you've, mm -hmm. you know, proven that first model and now yes. you're done. Yes. So talk a little bit more about what that looks like for an organization over the course of their life and, and their, their scaling evolution. How do they continue to think about testing and iterating and, and making those, those small, small experiments to make mm -hmm. sure that they're making progress in the right way? Yeah, I mean, I think that, I think that um, experimentation is necessary throughout the life cycle. Unless you feel like you have something that is the perfect solution that can never be better, which I don't know that any of us ever will have, mm -hmm. um, we always need to continue to learn. But the investment in learning, you know, so I would I would say we need to look at the balance of how much do we need to learn versus how much do we need to execute. And in the very beginning, when we don't know how to do something, we don't have anything that's sufficient. We needs to be mostly about experimentation and learning. And later on where you have something that's working pretty well, mm -hmm. then you may want to focus a little bit more on execution and a little bit less on learning. But that doesn't mean the learning part goes away. Mm -hmm. Just to give another example of an area where innovation can be hard because it takes a long time to realize impact is an uh, organization, a nonprofit in California called Summit Public Schools. Mm -hmm. Diane, who founded Summit Public Schools, started with this notion that she wanted to create a school that could bring in a diverse student population and have every single student graduate from college. So they brought in the you know, best practices for education, started up the school, you know, ran a few charter schools, and eight years later, their first cohort graduated from college, and they did extremely well. They did much better than their peers. And so they were getting all this pressure, like, look at, you know, you guys have great results, right. like, now you Do should scale. Yep. Do mm -hmm. scale. And Diane thought, yes, we did well. I'm proud of this, but we need to do better. Like we need, you know, it's not a hundred percent. I want to get to a hundred percent. And so she, but she recognized like, I can't do this another eight years to try something different and see if it works. Right. And so instead of like just doubling down and trying to either scale the model that was good enough or try something else for another eight years, she decided instead to focus on building a culture of innovation and experimentation and agility into the organization. And so what they did was they they, they read the Lean Startup, they um, started you know looking at how they could learn more quickly, and they built a system where they would um, capture data on a weekly basis through student ass learning assessments, through focus groups, through teacher evaluations to understand progress. And then they ran a series uh, for a year to refine their model. They, they ran a series of week-long experiments where they would vary the content of the classroom and the, the mix of activities from teacher-led lectures to self-paced learning to you know, small group activities and projects to try to see what yielded the best results. And you know, they literally every week changed things around, tried it again and learned and learned and pivoted. And through the course of this year, really refined their um, groundbreaking approach to personalized learning. And you know, the, the, their most recent cohort, they haven't gotten to the eight years yet, but their most recent cohort, 99% got into college, mm. which is I think a, a you know, great accomplishment. And their model's now been adopted by 300 schools, public schools around the country. Um, so it's a great example again of like how they dramatically sped up their learning process and they're still continuing to learn. I think they're not quite as intensively just focused on learning now mm -hmm. as they've gotten um, you know traction with something that is doing very well. Um, but they're continuing to like you know in their charter schools experiment with things it's and learn and embedded in that culture. And yeah. so that's that'll always be a part of, of the way they operate. It's really interesting and and you know also a good example that that makes me wonder what sort of pushback you've gotten from from your book and generally from espousing this kind of model of of 
small experimentation, et cetera. Thinking about that, that example of summit schools, I can imagine a parent saying, you're experimenting on my child. Mm-hmm. How dare you, right? In the, uh-huh. in the corporate sector, we're okay with that. But when we're talking mm-hmm. about people and lives and, and animals or whatever the, the social issue is, it becomes a different um, equation. Yeah. So I'm curious if you've gotten that, that pushback about this methodology as applied to the impact sector. And, and if so, what do you say? Yeah, I mean, it definitely makes people queasy when we start talking about experimenting on vulnerable populations. Mm -hmm. And it's one of the other reasons why, it's one of the big barriers, again, to applying innovation techniques. And it's it's one of the reasons to start small. Let me give an analogy first, which is, if no one ever got the first polio vaccine, millions of people would have died. Mm -hmm. But the first person that got the polio vaccine, there was a risk. Right. Right, and but it was a measured risk because before they got the polio vaccine, we probably did stuff in petri dishes, we did stuff with rats, then we did stuff with monkeys, mm-hmm. and we did these small tests to see whether it was safe and learn a little bit more, you know, refine things a little bit more, and then when right. we felt like you know the next increment of learning could only be had by trying it with a person, we tried it with a person, and there was a little bit of a risk, but we only tried it with one or a few people probably at first, and and then we sort of amped up from there. So two things I would say is one is. It's irresponsible not to experiment, mm-hmm. right? Because we could be improving millions and maybe billions of lives if we can get better solutions. So we need to try. And we need to be very thoughtful about how we experiment. When we start small, when we experiment with only a few people, we can both be much more attentive to what's happening and you know, the, the level of risk is far decreased. Uh, w- one example that I talk about in the book of, of doing this is there is a a social enterprise called Watsi. That's a crowdfunding website that is crowdfunding from donors in the U.S. to pay for surgeries of people in developing countries who are too poor to be able to afford them. And when they first started this concept, they weren't sure if people would step up to pay. But they went out and they recruited some patients and they asked them to take their precious time and you know to come to share their stories even though they were suffering and, and having health crises and they felt real responsibility to these patients mm-hmm, absolutely so they only took three and they had them put their got all their information put up web pages that showed their profiles and what they needed and why and they made a commitment themselves and they said you know if this whole thing fails and nobody donates money we're setting aside our own savings to pay for their mm-hmm. surgery so they're going to be made whole but we're going to th- try and see if people will pay for them fortunately they you know they got Got a bunch fortunately of interest. Fortunately for everyone, yeah. it, it worked out. <laughs> yeah, fortunately it worked out. But you know, the idea is that because they started with three people, they were able to really you know make them whole and mm-hmm. make make sure nothing unexpected happened, or if it did, be able to respond to it much more quickly than if you run an experiment. You know, we run these global development programs a lot of times, which are based on something we did before, but are not exactly the same. But we run them with like thousands of people at once, and I would say there's a lot of irresponsible risk there because we don't know exactly what's going to happen. It's a different context, a slightly different intervention. And that to me is actually a, a, a different kind of risk. Mm. A, a great explanation to think about the, the longer term and, and the, the risks that we're accounting for and the ones that we're not and how we can create a better solution over the, over the long term by doing some of those initial risk taking. And, you know, I, I think there's, there's so many barriers in terms of adopting this sort of innovation culture in, in the impact space. One that we've just talked about of this 
fear of experimenting on vulnerable populations, but also things like the, the risk aversion of funders generally, yeah. or the, the balance that social ventures have to strike in terms of meeting the needs, of, as we talked about earlier, of, of that de the demand from both the end user, but also from your partners, your your funders, et cetera. It's just, it's a very complex place, mm -hmm. uh, the social impact space. And so I imagine there are a lot of barriers that make it harder in the impact space to incorporate these lean impact uh, kind of methodologies. I'm curious if you could, if I could give you a magic wand and you could change one thing about the sector to take away a, a critical barrier to unlock the potential of, of this lean impact methodology for, for achieving real social change, what's the thing that you would pick? It's, uh, that's an easy answer. Yes. Um, just uh, the barrier that came up the most frequently for me was funding and the nature of funding in particular, that funding tends to be very sort of risk averse, very prescriptive and restrictive, and sort of the opposite of what you'd want when you're innovating. Right. Usually for people who aren't familiar with how grants typically work, you apply for a grant, usually the funder has an idea of what they want. So they've spent a bunch of time designing a program that they want. You respond and say, this is what I'm going to do. You often have to submit a plan that's you know down to the penny. This is how many people, this is what they're going to do, this is exactly what I'm going to deliver. And, and then you're expected to execute faithfully to that plan. So really the opposite of what you'd want to mm -hmm. do for lean. I think that that type of model is great if you're trying to deliver something which is predictable and which you have a solution that's completely sufficient and you want to operate essentially like a utility company, right? We're just going to be predictably delivering stuff. But that's not the nature of most of the problems we work on. So it's just the wrong approach for the, the job. Right. Um, and so and I, I would argue even when we think we have that perfect solution to a social problem, the context, the ecosystem, the problem Absolutely. evolves. So Absolutely. even when we do have it right, it's, it's likely going to evolve over time and, and be more complicated. Absolutely. And so when we're working in uncertain environments, dynamic environments, mm -hmm. and we're working with solutions that are just insufficient mm -hmm. um, for the task, we just need to take a different approach. And I think that funding needs to accommodate for that. It is the short-term, long-term trade-off. I mean, the reason that in the tech world that I come from, funding is, is far more flexible is because there's this potential upside. You know, venture capitalists will take a lot of risks on a bunch of startups that may or may not succeed because if one of them does, then they'll They're be rich. looking for the home run, right? Yeah, mm -hmm. and I think that that same tenet holds true for the social sector, but it's not a financial payoff, it's an impact payoff. Mm -hmm. And it's hard for funders to make that choice because mm -hmm. if you're USAID, you're beholden to U.S. tax players. If you're a foundation, you're beholden to your trustees. And people want to see immediate tangible results. And so we default back to the short-term deliverables. And it, I think, has held us back dramatically from what we could deliver in the long term. Do you see any of that shifting as, as impact investing emerges, where we're starting to see a little bit of a convergence of this sort of VC model and that thinking mm -hmm. uh, alongside the more philanthropic uh, mode of, of giving? I definitely see it changing. Um, you know, And this is what we were doing at the lab, is we were pioneering within USAID, again, one of the most conservative of donors you could think of out there, we were pioneering ways to take more risk in a responsible way. And a lot of it, again, um, it's much more possible if you start small. So we had a funding window called Development Innovation Ventures, or DIV, which was a tiered um, evidence-based funding model based on venture capital. But rather than giving out the traditional like 10 or $50 million grants that USAID does, where you really can't 
take you know take a huge risk because it's a lot of money. We gave out small grants of like hundred thousand dollars in the first tier to be able to spread spread our bets around more, try, take more risk, try a lot more different things. And I have to say, even though we're a, a conservative organization, I went to Congress and talked to Congress about us doing that, and nobody blinked because it was a small amount of money. Mm-hmm. We could talk about that we failed with a bunch of these things, but we also talk about things we succeeded with. Mm-hmm. And so. USAID is more and more using mechanisms like this in grand challenges. I know uh, as they're looking at procurement reform, they're looking at ways to be able to encompass more agility, you know, more risk-taking within the grant-making structure because, you know, we all know that if you take no risk, you get no reward. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. We're definitely seeing a lot of, of evolution and creativity in, in the funding landscape. And I think that's such a positive sign, not only for the, the methodologies and the work that you're espousing, but generally for the way we're going to solve social problems. Yeah. And as you see more and more funding now, you know, there's so much wealth being generated in Silicon Valley and seeing philanthropists coming out of there. I think they bring a different mindset. Mm-hmm. So they're also helping to shape the you know, the new world of, you know, whether it's, you know, Gates Foundation or now CZI with Zuckerberg or, you know, some of the new money that's coming in is uh, starting to be more risk-seeking. And I'm hoping that that will shift the dynamics in, in the funding side of the equation. Well, really interesting. A lot a lot to come in this in this space and in this field. I'll look forward to the next book from, from Anne May. Um, but in the meantime, we always have to end with some lightning round questions. So a couple of quick answer and responses. I'll, I'll throw some out to you. So I'm curious to start with what drives you? You know, I'm a funny beast. Most people who work for social good really want to see tangible results, right? They, they want to see like, you know, there's a hungry kid and they're not hungry more, or, you know, I built a house, like it's very tangible. I, I'm, maybe because I'm an engineer, I'm really driven by systems change. Like, I want to change the system. I want like everybody who's working for good to be able to have the tools to do more good. How do you define success? So, so success in my mind is is really it depends on the problem you care about. We all have different things we're passionate about, but, but success is really moving the needle. So you can tell that something changed. Not just you, if you look at your specific program, but if you look at the world, that the world is a better place. Great. And then final question. Tell me one thing that gives you hope. I think what really gives me hope is I I was so lucky to be able to talk to such amazing social entrepreneurs and people who are working in various different fields for good uh, in the course of writing this book. And they give me hope. I mean, just the amazing things that people have figured out how to do to plow away to finding impact. That's fantastic. I feel the same way. Very lucky to to do the work that we both get to do and to be inspired by those individuals and the teams and organizations that are really doing that incredible work on the ground to day by day uh, and person by person really solve some of these social challenges. And I know that Lean Impact is going to have an incredible impact on all those organizations and give them a lot of tools and tactics and stories to inspire them about how to really effectively achieve that change. So thank you for your contribution to the field with this incredible book and, and just thank you for being here today to talk with us. Thanks so much for having me. Thanks to Anne May for a great conversation. Some of the key takeaways that I got from that discussion were around her advice to think big, but start with small experiments that we can test and iterate to see what's working without having to invest in years of programming. 
Another takeaway that really resonated with me was her thoughts on the three core pillars of a successful social innovation. Number one, the value. Do customers need what you're providing? Is there demand? Number two, impact. Does what you're doing actually work? And number three, around scalability, which looks different in the social sector than in the commercial. It's not just about scaling an organization, but about scaling impact. And then finally, a really interesting conversation with Anne May around the critical barriers for impact organizations to adopt these methodologies. And the one that she picked out is the most important, funding, and how we need to continue to move our funding choices to become less restrictive and more adaptive to the changing nature of solutions and problems. But I love that we were able to see lots of hope in the work that funders are doing and good examples of how we're starting to better leverage impact investing and innovative funders to better support social impact organizations. I hope you enjoyed this conversation and the conversations that we've been having on Case in Point. Don't forget to subscribe. And if you have been enjoying this podcast, help us spread the word by leaving a five-star review wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks so much, and we'll see you next time.